Good morning. Let me uh, share with you a couple of connections that we have. Uh, first, uh, I am privileged to be married to by far the best looking of the Marceau children. Uh, my wife Kathy and Van are siblings and privileged to be here this morning. I just uh, noticed as I was sitting here the light emanating from Rob's well-shaven head over there. And uh, Rob Doherty was for a number of years a uh, member at the Covington Bible Church where I pastor. He and my son used to run together uh, back at Covington High School and uh, privileged to see you here, Rob. Glad to hear good things about uh, you and what's going on here. Um, Pastor Billy mentioned that uh, last week uh, Dan Anderson, uh, I still call him Dan because I knew him long before he was doctor, uh, Dan and I graduated, and Rosalie as well, graduated in the class of 1971 from uh, Appalachian Bible College, and uh, so the class of 71 of Appalachian being represented uh, well here this morning. I'm one of the few people in this part of the world who recognize that flag as the uh, flag of Kazakhstan. I just spoke with uh, Chris yesterday morning, uh, Chris and Nancy, and uh, Silas and Kira, by the way, I have pictures of Silas and Kira here on my necktie. It was a Christmas gift from them. Uh, they were on an extended vacation visa hunting expedition in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, they just returned uh, to uh, Astana, get my days straight, uh, yesterday. In fact, when I talked to Chris, they had uh, just shortly, uh, well, they're 10 hours ahead, so they had been there about 10 hours when I spoke uh, with him. I have no idea why, nor do they. I was talking to uh, Sam Erickson in between the services this morning and uh, perhaps uh, connect them up with some legal counsel over there. Uh, utterly weird, is it not, that a preacher from Virginia goes to West Virginia to find out who a lawyer is in Astana to help his son. Uh, but uh, the Lord's uh, connections are incredible. But um, Chris was granted a one-year visa. This is like the third visa that they're working on here at this point. Uh, his wife, Nancy, and uh, the children were uh, given six-month visas. I don't know why. They don't know why. Perhaps nobody knows why. Maybe the blanks for one-year visas ran out and they just filled theirs out. And so I have no idea what in the world this is about. But uh, we appreciate very much you uh, working with us and partnering with us because not only is... Uh, uh, Chris, my son, but uh, Chris and Nancy are missionaries at Covington Bible Church as they are here from Fellowship Bible Church. Then just a couple of other commonalities that we have. Uh, my friend uh, Doug Williams uh, was here, I understand, a couple of months ago and spoke at your missions weekend. And Doug is uh, at present probably doing the same thing I'm doing, getting going in the message there at Covington Bible Church where they're living. Uh, his son Andy just graduated from uh, high school uh, this past, uh, just a couple of days ago. And then I understand you folks have had uh, some connection with a man with the most interesting name, Pink Davis. To make his name even more interesting, his middle initial is E. And uh, that is his real name. He was named after his father, who was named after his granddad. And uh, I've been in touch with Pink here a good bit lately. And uh, they have about 80% of their support, uh, Pink tells me, uh, moving them toward, uh, toward New Zealand. And I know some of you have maintained an interest in their ministry, and we thank you very much. 
Well, if you would, put your Bibles down for a moment. I'll tell you when to pick them up here in a few minutes. And let me tell you a story. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And he was a good man, moral and upright. He feared God and avoided evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He was wealthy. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 brood donkeys, and a very great household, so that he was the greatest man of all the men of the East. And his sons used to go and feast in their houses, everyone on his day. And they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when this season of feasting was past, Job would send and sanctify them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings for each of his children because he thought that they might have sinned and cursed God in their hearts or attitude. This was Job's regular practice. One day when Job's children were eating and drinking wine at their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell on them and took them away, and they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God from heaven fell, and burned up the sheep and the servants, totally consuming them, and I alone escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another arrived and said, The Chaldeans attacked with a three-pronged attack, and have stolen the camels and have driven them away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone escaped to tell you. Before he was finished, another messenger came, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. Oh, it was terrible. A great wind came from the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on them and killed them, and I alone escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe and shaved his head, and fell down on the ground and worshipped and said, I came into this world naked, I'll leave the same way. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. And Job was smitten with painful boils from the, soil of his, from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. And he took an old piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself. And he sat down in the ash heap. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak like a foolish woman. What? Shall we receive good from the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came, every one, from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and to mourn with him and comfort him. And when they first caught sight of him, they hardly knew him. 
They lifted up their voice and wept, and they tore their garments and sprinkled dust on their head as a sign of grief. They sat down with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights, and none spoke a word to him because they saw that his grief was very great. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth and said, Let the day perish on which I was born. Now at this point, some of you, because you know the scriptures well, are asking yourself the question, who is this brother-in-law that Van asked to come in and speak? He left half the story out. There was a scene in heaven in which Satan came and appeared before God and, and Satan gained permission to afflict Job up to a point and then he came again and he was able to take his health but not take his life. Yes, I know that's there, but I read the story this way because we need to understand that this is all of the story that Job knew. Job had no idea about anything going on in heaven. He had no idea about any bargaining that was going on between Satan and God. All that Job knew was that he was a good man. He was getting along pretty well in life. He was kind of like an old comedy routine that I remember that always began this way. I was just walking down the street minding my own business. And this is what happened. This is all that Job knew. Now Job was a man of compassion. Later on in this book that bears his name, he speaks of his concern for those that are afflicted. In chapter 31, Job says that he was even careful about what he did with his eyes. And Job 31.1 says, How then could I gaze at a virgin? I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Years before Christ, Job realized that if a man looks on a woman for the purpose of inciting lust that he's already committed adultery. Thousands of years before Paul, he had decided to make no provision for his flesh in regard to its lusts, as Paul said in Romans 12, 15. Long before Solomon, Job had decided that he would not be turned on by anyone other than the wife of his youth, as Solomon had spoken in Proverbs 5. Job says that he was one that dealt just, justly with his slaves. Just turn over in the book of Job to chapter 31. We get somewhat of an ethical resume of Job in this chapter. Job chapter 31, beginning at verse 24. We find that, that, that Job was a man who did not put his confidence in the wrong thing. In Job chapter 31, beginning at verse 24, we read this. If I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, and you'll see how he ends this in a moment, he avoided the temptation to worship the heavenly bodies that was common among so many of his contemporaries. Look at verse 26. He said, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon going in splendor and my heart became secretly enticed, and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth. That too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment, for I would have denied God above. Going on in verse 29, he talks about how that he resisted revenge, which was extremely common in this day. He says, have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy? 
or exalted when evil befell him. No, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking his life in a curse. Job's home was open to others. Look at verse 31. Have the men of my tent not said, Who can find one who has not been satisfied with his meat? The alien has not lodged outside, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. He avoided being a hypocrite. Look at what it says in verse 33. Have I covered my transgressions like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom because I feared the great multitude and the contempt of families terrified me and kept silent and did not go out of doors? What you saw was what you got with Job. He was straightforward, not hypocritical. And those of you in business will love this. Job paid his bills. Look at verse 38. If my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I have eaten its fruit without money or have caused its owners to lose their lives, Job goes on. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, Howard. I know a lot of people who will say all kinds of good things about themselves. Anybody can say good things about himself. But we know for sure that Job was right. Because back in chapter 1 and verse 8, God himself said that Job was an upright man. That he stayed away from evil. In fact, Job was the supreme example that God brought forth to show to Satan. Listen, Satan, you are not getting your way altogether down here on this earth. Have you considered my servant Job? Now, Job's friends didn't know anything about this heavenly stuff either. All that they knew was that they'd known Job for years. He was a good guy. He didn't cheat at golf. If he borrowed their lawnmower, he, he brought it back. He even put gas in the tank before he brought it back. He was a good guy. And yet when they received the email, when they got the phone call, when they heard that their friend Job was in this horrible condition, they all communicated with one another. They came from their place and they met there. And when they saw him, they would not have recognized their own friend unless somebody had pointed out and said, yes, that's him. I mean, he was sitting in a pile of ashes covered in blood and pus. In a horrendous condition, they were so appalled that they sat there for a week without saying anything. Job's wife couldn't see anything else either. All that she knew was that her husband had been reduced to a condition of absolute wretchedness. And so she said, Job, why do you continue to maintain that God's a good God? Why don't you curse God and die? Now we've got a problem here. Job wrestled with this problem. Certainly Job's wife wrestled with the problem. Job's three friends spend the bulk of this book wrestling with the problem. David, in Psalm 37 and Psalm 73, he wrestles with the problem. The problem Habakkuk wrestles with the, he, the prophet Habakkuk, excuse me, wrestles with the problem. Great philosophers like David Hume, they've wrestled with it. Several years ago, there was a very sensitive and caring Jewish rabbi who was forced to wrestle with this problem. On the day that his second born, a daughter, came into the world, his firstborn son, a little boy named Aaron, was found to be afflicted with the disease progeria. 
Pulgaria is a disease that uh, so afflicts youngsters that they age very rapidly. And so by the time they're 10, 12, 13 years old, they're little people three and a half or four foot tall who look like someone who's 70 or 80 years old. And so every year at Aaron's birthday, his parents worked to fight back the tears because they knew that one more year was gone in his short life. After he died at 14 years of age, Rabbi Harold Kushner recorded his thoughts in a best-selling book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Let me add one more to that list. Howard Merrill struggles with this problem. If God is good and God is great, then why does life hurt so bad? If we live in a world in which we have a good God, an all-powerful God, how can such wretched things happen to a good guy like Job and you fill in the blanks with your experience on your own? Well, people, philosophers, etc., have offered varying solutions. We'll see some of the answers, so-called, that are offered in this book. The answer that some people would offer is that maybe Job really isn't good after all. Maybe Job is just a guy that's, that, that's good at, at looking good, but really he's not. In fact, throughout the central portion of this book, and keep in mind that the book of Job, it has this introduction, and I told you most of the story from the introduction. It has this ending in which God comes and speaks. Most of the central part is people making speeches, kind of back and forth, almost like a political convention, if you will. And throughout that central portion, Job's three friends basically have a message that comes at him again and again and again. They say, Job, you are a bad man. Why don't you fess up? We know that you must be a bad man because God would not do the things to you. God would not allow you to be in the condition you're in unless you're a bad man. Your condition proves that you're bad. Now, if you want to jot down some passages, you can look at Job chapter 4 and verse 8, or Job chapter 8, verses 1 through 7, or Job chapter 8 and verse 20. Look at one example with me. Look at Job 22 and verse 5, because here is one of the examples of his friends making this accusation. Simply this way, Is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? They couldn't point to anything that Job had done. They couldn't say, you know, we saw you do this. We have evidence that you did that. Their conclusion was based on their theology. And their theology was such that good people receive good things and bad people receive bad things. You're receiving bad stuff, therefore you must be bad, Job. Fess up. So perhaps that's the answer. Other people put forth this answer. They say, maybe God isn't good. Maybe he's just an arbitrary bully. Good, bad, they make no difference. That's really the answer that much of the world gives, you know. Their God is kind of dumb luck, okay. You go down and buy a lottery ticket, either it happens or it doesn't. Sometimes people that are very nice people win the lottery. 
Sometimes people that are wretches win the lottery. Is that all God is, just this chance? Job came perilously close to believing this. Look at what he says in chapter 9, beginning at verse 17. For he, that is God, Job's talking here, for he bruises me with a tempest and he multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath but saturates me with bitterness. If it's a matter of power, behold, he is the strong one. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Or, you know, where's the court to which I can call God to get justice, he's saying. Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. And then down in verse 22, he says, It is all one. Therefore, I say he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. Wow. Now, though it appears in passages like this that, that Job comes perilously close to accusing God of being unjust, my conclusion is he never did absolutely do that. And, and I offer in Job's defense this well-known passage from Job 19, verse 25. He says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. Well, if that's not the answer, then maybe the answer is that God really isn't powerful. He's kind of like Jim Carrey and Ke Kevin Almighty, just trying to do the best he can. Some theologians are playing with this. You've got the process theologians. You've got those who believe in the God of the possibilities, etc., that God's kind of doing the best he can, the man upstairs kind of thing. In fact, this was the conclusion that Rabbi Harold Kushner came to, that God's a good God, but really he's just got more on his plate than he can handle, and he's doing the best he can, and we just kind of need to go with him. Or maybe, maybe, some of the folks like the Christian science people or the New Agers, they're right, and there really isn't any evil at all. We just need to get down with Job in the ash pit and get him to say over and over, every day and in every way, I'm getting better and better. Job, try a little positive thinking. Inch by inch, life's a cinch, Job. You know, if you would quit talking about all this bad stuff, quit claiming it, then perhaps everything would just... Yeah, right. What do the kids say? Gag me with a spoon? <laughs> now I've introduced the problem. Now where do we go? What do we do? You see, I reject all of these answers. I believe that God is a good God. I believe that God is all-powerful. And I believe, based on the testimony of God's word, that Job was a good man. And yet I'm stuck with this situation of bad things happening to this very good man. Job's suffering was not poured out on him because he was a bad man. God does judge sin. He judges some sin in this life. He will judge all sin that is not forgiven on the basis of faith 
in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This world is a place that's full of evil, real evil. Cranes collapse in New York City. Earthquakes strike China. Cyclones hit Myanmar while silly dictators in fancy uniforms with medals on their chest keep out those that would help their countrymen. Tornadoes pick up mobile homes and kill little babies. Young families go to the other side of the world with every intention of being a blessing to the people there, only to be harassed by petty bureaucrats and officials with inflated egos. Well, is that all there is? Just suck it up and go on with life? Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I want to point you to two ideas in Romans 8. I want you to focus with me first at verse 22. Romans 8, 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves at waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Let me read those verses once again from somewhat of a paraphrase of the New Testament, the New Living Translation. Think about it as I read. For we know that all creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering we too wait with eager hope for the day when God, will give us, when, when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies that he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. You know, the evil in this world compels us to come to the Savior who alone can change our hearts. If you are depending on wealth, it will let you down. If you're depending on your health, it will let you down. If you're depending on your, your ability to, to manipulate things with your mind, your ability to think fast on your feet, that will let you down. If you're depending on your friends, they will let you down. If you're depending on the government, it will let you down. There is nothing in this world that is dependable other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has allowed this world to be the way that it is so that it compels us to that point. It reminds me of the movies that you've seen on National Geographic or somewhere where they're catching elephants over in India. And, you know, they, they begin to drive these elephants. And at first they drive them into this fence where it's so wide they don't even notice. And then finally it narrows down to the point where there's a gate across and they put it and they're caught there. And this world is that way. If we will allow God to teach us, it brings us to this inexorable point 
that there is hope in Christ and Christ alone and nothing else. And if you're depending on anything else, it will let you down. And so this world drives us to hope in Jesus. Then look at verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now let me give you a very careful bit of analysis here. I hate to be technical, but this is one of those points where I think we really need to delve into these words. Notice the two words in the English translation, all things. Now I've spent a great deal of time studying this, and this is my conclusion, that those two words mean all things. We're talking about smacking into the side of a pickup truck when you're riding a bicycle and breaking your hip. We're talking about being stupid enough to take five hymn books, put them on a set of stairs so that you can make an even place for the ladder to change a light bulb and breaking both your arms. We're talking about major tragedies like cranes falling in New York City and some people just sleeping in their bed when it happens. We're talking about cyclones. and We're even talking about the idiotic bureaucracies that some of you work for that surprise you to the point that you figure that somewhere in the bowels of government there must be a department that is tasked with coming up with more idiotic stuff for them to pass on to you. Now let me simply tell you, if there are any of those things that are able to compel you to move outside the will of God, then stop worshiping God and worship that because it's greater than God. But the promise of God's word is that all things work together to bring us down that funnel, if you will, to that point where we will be made conformable to the Lord Jesus Christ. Just look at these words as Paul goes on and expresses himself. Look at verse 31 in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? There's not anything God's going to withhold from you that is necessary for you to be the person that God wants you to be. Notice down here in verse 37. In all these things, there it is again, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the soft light of a chapel, in the midst of a dark world, behold the preacher ascended to his, temp, to his pulpit to pray. Before him there were 100, and in the eyes of the 100 one could see 6 billion. The preacher placed a lozenge in his mouth that made his voice smooth and melodious. And in tones somber and holy, he began, let us pray. The people said amen, but there was no joy in that amen. Lord, for the blessings 
of health we give you thanks. For eyes that see the glory of the sunset and ears that hear the song of the bird. For skin that tingles with the warmth of the sun in the morning and the coolness of fresh laundered sheets at night. For feet that walk and hands that grasp and arms that embrace, we are most grateful. Unnoticed, a man deformed from birth limped out into the darkness. One blind for whom light and dark are alike followed the sound of his dragging foot. A woman in chronic pain, another bald from chemotherapy, and six others maimed and marred in body left the cocoon of light. But the preacher looking up to heaven noticed none of what was going on below. Gracious Father, for the marvel of minds that think and imagine and grow and learn, we give you praise. For the power of great ideas and the beauty that is first seen in our heart before it is ever put on canvas or on paper or sung in song, we are most truly grateful. A child daily told by her parents that she was stupid. A high school dropout, an illiterate construction worker, several with disabilities, major and mild, look sheepishly at one another and in the unnoticed manner that they lived their lives day to day, ten more slipped out into the night. Lord, for your justice and equity that reign in this world, we give you praise. With looks of resignation, a refugee from Darfur, an untouchable from India, a Jew whose child had died in a suicide bombing and a Palestinian whose house had been bulldozed in retaliation. The disenfranchised and victims of discrimination went back to the darkness to which they had become accustomed. The preacher, enraptured by the sound of his voice, continued on, for our families that embrace us and nurture us, for mother love and the stability of dads and the joy of little ones. Orphans and widows, the barren and brokenhearted, those abused, abandoned, and cast out, who knew that something was wrong and as always it must be their fault, they sought the comfort of the darkness because it hid them from that which they could not face. But drawing unction from his lozenge, the preacher praised God for the bounty of God's provision, food that satisfies our needs, homes that protect and enrich us, clothing that keeps us warm. A man whose house had been blown down by a cyclone and another, the victim of an earthquake, were joined by bloated, knobby-kneed children and those who wore on their backs all that they owned the little congregation of light was diminished by ten more. Almost in a trance, the preacher went on to praise God for his gifts of beauty and wealth, influence and talent. And silently from around the room, others fled the light where apparently they did not belong and hid in the darkness. The preacher came to the end of his prayer and expected the congregation to join him in his amen. But when he paused, awaiting their reply, 
He heard only silence. Looking down, he saw that he was alone. Where have they gone, O oh Lord? My son, when have I promised my children in this world health of body or excellence of mind? This is the world that groans and travails because of sin. Did not my son warn that his followers would be persecuted and maligned even as he was? Did not my servant John make clear that this world lies in the power of the wicked one? Inasmuch as you have encouraged them to trust in those things that I did not promise and that you cannot provide, they have forsaken you. Then, O oh Lord, what will you give us? And the voice replied, Myself. The preacher came down from his lofty pulpit and throwing open the doors, he gazed into the darkness. Throwing his box of lozenges out into the night, he cried out in a voice cracked but human, My, my friends, I have deceived you. Forgive me. God has not promised us any of the blessings about which I prayed. We may not have health or wealth or beauty or clarity of mind. We might be deprived of home and family and justice. Even the food we eat and the clothing that we wear are not guaranteed. But there is one thing of which we can be sure. He has given us himself. And that is enough. Behold, the preacher ascended to his pulpit to pray. Before him there were 100, and in their eyes could be seen 6 billion. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your Son. May we live so that the world will see him in us. From throats and hands there arose an amen. And there was joy in that amen. And when it is all, in, all said and done, what really matters is our relationship with Jesus Christ. A personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you, Pastor Howard, for, uh, for your words. But let us close and, uh, and, uh, and seek the Lord. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we... We can do nothing but trust in your Son. By trusting in things that will perish, by seeking pleasurable pleasure in this, in this world, uh, we are doing ourselves a disservice and, and you a disservice. By claiming that we are followers of you through your Son, Jesus Christ, and yet following other things that, will not, that will not, ultimately will not give us the, the satisfaction of you, uh, we are wrong. Help us, Lord, in our daily endeavors to look to you and to look to your Son as an example so that we may preach the good news of your Son to all those that need it. In the good and the bad, Lord, let us praise your name. I pray all these things in your Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>